You're listening to a provocation from the 2013 World's Literature Festival, where writers from across the world gather to discuss the art and craft of writing. This year's salon is on the theme of ways of reading, ways of writing. Uh, yeah, thank you, John. This is, I think, the fourth time I've been uh, to, to one of these. It's just always fantastic, actually, so it's wonderful to be... Uh, invited back, and uh, can you hear okay, by the way? <coughs> and I know... Marcel, Marcel can't hear. Could you move the microphone just to tell me? Yeah, okay. Um, am I in danger of booming now, or are we okay? Um, and I know this is <coughs> meant to be a, a provocation, and I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it'll become evident that not only am I not going to say anything remotely provocative, but I'm only going to say things with which every reasonable person would agree. <laughs> uh, and the sign of this is, um, having effaced the self yesterday, there's going to be a, an element of narcissism in this, because I'm going to talk about three, three books, which I think are kind of uh, exemplary in their way, and they do, I might as well say, they do happen to be by me. <laughs> uh, and these are books, and that, that key word is book, because I, one of the things I'm going to write about is my <clears throat> weird loyalty to that, that quaint old thing, the book, even though, as you'll see, some other form might be more appropriate to, to what I'm up to. <clears throat> I don't know, I think I'm probably not alone in this, but I really need the carrot of that book as object uh, at the end of the, the world. I need that reward for having uh, <clears throat> for having written it. And then at the end, right at the end, uh, I'll say something about what has been called my greatest achievement. Uh, and I guess in the interests of full disclosure, I should admit that the person who described this as my greatest achievement was actually me. <laughs> <laughs> This sort of thing that I'm going to be talking about, I think it has its origins back in my days as a student, and they were quite typical, I think. I was at Oxford, and the format was very simple. It was this. During the vacations, we would read the books, the literature, poetry and novels, and that was fun. And then during term time, we'd read the criticism, which was the opposite of fun. It was kind of boring, really. And the scale of the gap between those two experiences, one of which was just pure pleasure and the other of which seemed sort of deadly. That was, I think, you know, I think a lot of what I've done since then can be, can be traceable back to that. Uh, those of you who've travelled on the London Underground, you'll be aware of this thing that you hear at some stations, mind the gap. So a lot of what I've been up to, I think, has been about the gap uh, and... I've tried in different ways to, to shrink the gap, ideally to get rid of it entirely, the gap between you know, the work and the commentary about it. And in this regard, I was helped a great deal by, I mean, real inspiration for me, somebody whose name came up at the beginning of the week, uh, John Berger, who was a great inspiration for me and has been a great sort of mentor and friend. Um, you know, this week, uh, what we're doing is called Ways of Writing, Ways of Reading. The first book of Burgess I read was called Ways of Seeing. And in the mid-1980s, 
uh, I wrote my first book, an unbelievably boring book about John Berger called Ways of Telling. I mean, just the title. I mean, couldn't I have done better than that? What was I, what was I trying to put people off reading it? Uh, but the key thing for Berger, for me, is that he was an English writer who really exemplified something that I associated with people like Roland Barthes, Walter Benjamin. That is to say, this way of writing which combined criticism and commentary, which was both creative and, uh, and, and, and it was critical as well. Um, the other person I was helped by, although much later, uh, but uh, is... Um, I found a couple of things that George Steiner had written extremely useful. Uh, I'll mention first his claim, which I think is so central to the stuff we've been looking at this week, when he writes, latent in every act of complete reading is the compulsion to write a book in reply. So that's one nice little aphorism from uh, Steiner. But more importantly and substantially for me, it's that uh, his essay, Real Presences, uh, which I'm sure many of you uh, have read. It's the first of three essays in the book, Real Presences. He asks us to imagine a republic in which all criticism and commentary has been banned. In other words, a, a republic in which we only get the artworks themselves. And he asks us, you know, wouldn't our lives be impoverished like that? He says, no, not really, because... The tradition of any art adds up to a syllabus of enacted criticism. I think this is so central, I'll just read it again. The tradition of any art adds up to a syllabus of enacted criticism. And I read this at exactly the time that I was becoming interested in jazz, where that point of Steiner's is so obvious, partly because obviously it's music, so the gap, if you like, between writing about music and the music, which is all the time commenting on itself, is perhaps even, even starker, even more noticeable than it is when you've got uh, you know, novels being commented on by other forms of writing. Uh, you can see it I mean, so clearly that as successive performers do their versions of different of a particular song, they're offering both uh, a sort of homage to the people who've gone before, but inevitably they're offering some kind of creative commentary on the people who've gone before. Uh, jazz musicians have an amazing uh, consciousness of and debt to those who've gone before. Uh, and, you know, just to, to illustrate how, how sort of obvious this was to me, you can you can follow it just in the titles of the songs. So just to give you one little sort of sequence like this, Duke Ellington writes, take the Coltrane for John Coltrane. And then Charles Mingus writes, open letter to Duke. It's a tribute to Duke Ellington. And then the Art Ensemble of Chicago write their incredibly Mingusian piece called Charlie M, and so on. So it's, it, you, you can trace this in, uh, in, in the titles. Um, and so the first of my books I'm going to say something about is uh, this book about jazz came out in 1991 way before the internet it's called But Beautiful and what I did is I drew on some sort of pictures of, of musicians and I'm sort of worried people get bored if we don't show pictures so let's, let's show them oh there it is, great so I look at pictures of musicians 
And what I do is I take these sort of famous episodes in people in musicians' lives and then do kind of my versions of them. So let's say these episodes were kind of stand, standard things. I would do my, my versions of them, or I'd invent certain scenes. Uh, but the important thing is all of these scenes served as some kind of commentary on the music. Um, I know everyone likes to quiz as well, so if you can't see this very clearly, that was Ben Webster in the previous picture. Uh, this is a, a picture of Ben Webster in the hat, and I just wonder if, uh, it's, this is a picture by Roy de Carava, by the way, whose name will c come up later. Uh, does anybody recognize the person that Ben Webster is cuddling? Uh, it's John Coltrane. So that sense of the tradition, there it is, you know, Coltrane. But, you know, Coltrane is being encouraged by, by you know, the older Ben Webster. So I'll just give you, so now we're going to play just a, a little bit of, of music. Uh, this is Ben Webster playing one of his, uh, you know, one of the tunes he was most closely associated with, Chelsea Bridge. So we'll play a little bit. by the leafy water of dark canals. In England, he walked over Chelsea Bridge towards the embankment, the lights of the bridge imparting a kindness to the crowds of people flowing towards him, the businessmen in pinstripes and rollies, the women tied up in scarves and heels. He looked down at the Thames, a river so old and tired it hardly moved, bridges stretching away in either direction until the river twisted out of sight. It was the evening rush hour, everyone crowding into pubs or hurrying home to the toast-coloured lights of houses glowing through leafless trees. The evening swam in a blue haze, street lamps curled the navy water. Funny, the view made him homesick, but the place he felt homesick for was London. Something about the ink-blue sky, the light, sh the light showing through the trees, and the long, slow yawn of the Thames passing beneath it all. Even as you looked, it felt like a memory, like something from the past you were telling folks about. So we'll bring that to you. So this was uh, this was my little sort of version, if you like, of Chelsea Bridge. Uh, I'm going to go back now, technologically speaking, because. Um, do you remember the, some of the older members of the audience might remember those things called cassette tapes? Uh, I asked a, uh, a friend, because I didn't have this track, this, this was before the days when you could get every piece of music ever performed at the click of a finger. I asked a friend to send me a, a, a recording of Ben Webster playing Chelsea Bridge, and he did, and I listened to it, and that was the result. Then it turned out, though, that actually it wasn't a recording of Ben Webster playing Chelsea Bridge, it was a recording of David Murray, a much later saxophonist playing Chelsea Bridge. But it, 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 it sounded incredibly like Ben Webster because, if you think back to what I was saying earlier, it was his kind of tribute to, uh, to, uh, to Ben Webster. So I got that completely wrong. But it didn't matter, actually, because, uh, as many of you will know, uh, Chelsea Bridge was not a song written by Ben Webster. It was a song written by Billy Strayhorn, and Billy Strayhorn was doing a form of creative criticism himself because actually it was his response not to the actual bridge 
but to a painted bridge by Whistler. And the art historians among you will know that Billy Strayhorn got it wrong, that this was not a picture of Chelsea Bridge, it was a picture of Old Battersea Bridge. So in some weird way, the kind of two mistakes I felt cancelled themselves out in a really, really quite nice way. Uh, this book came out in 1991. It absolutely cried out to have a CD uh, with it of, of the music that I was writing about. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, and it was a, a sort of shame that it didn't. Uh, but the nice thing now, all these years later, is that various people have put together kind of uh, um, sort of playlists on Spotify. So now, uh, you know, now that you've got this, this thing, if this is the right context in, word, in which to use the word interface, you can now, it's easier than ever before, let's say, to, uh, to, to listen to the music and, uh, and read, read the book. Um, it's one of the things as well, I mean, so that was, that's one of the great things about it now, but actually I realised that if I was around now with my interest in jazz, I wouldn't have been able to write the book, because the motive for writing a book is often because the book you want to read is not available. Of course, it's loads easier to just go and buy a book in a shop than it is to, to write it. And now there is so much stuff about these mythic figures on the internet that really, you know, my sort of desire to, to, to write the book would have been the, the desire that led to my writing the book. I'd have just been uh, satisfied at the level of, of a consumer. Uh, and I'm not going to play it now because I find it so unbelievably moving that I just can't listen to it without welling up with tears. But those of you who are interested in this thing, uh, there's a wonderful description. For me, it's the, the most powerful description of one great artist writing and meeting another that I've ever come across. You can listen to Don Cherry talking about the first time that he ever met Albert Eiler. It's totally amazing. It starts at this mythic level. He sort of says, I was in Copenhagen with Sonny Rollins. And, you know, and from there, it just gets better and better. So uh, that's, on, that's on YouTube. Uh, that sense of the, uh, of the tradition of any art form commenting on itself all the time was really, I was really conscious of it, especially when I became interested in photography. Uh, this was in the, I guess, in the sort of early, the early 21st century. And so, uh, you know, I decided I'd write a book about photography. And what I do is look at the way that different photographers had photographed the same thing. And I started with this famous image by... Bill Brown? No. Point away. <laughs> Point deducted. Uh, by Paul Strand. So, and then, uh, you know, I just, you know, uh, other loads of photographers, you know, that was a real inspiration for Walker Evans, that picture, and loads of other people uh, did pictures of blind people. This is a picture by Gary Winogrand, and men of a certain age in the room might realize that that woman dropping coins into the blind man's cup is Ali McGraw. So... Anyway, so yeah, a lot of people... Uh, so I just looked at the way that, you know, there's all these different sort of categories that I looked at. Pictures of blind people, and then I looked also at, you know, pictures of people wearing hats. A picture by Dorothea Lang. Uh, and it was funny, you know, when you were at school, you do these little projects. Um, I would sort of... Tr I would find the things that 
you know, hats or benches or whatever it was, and I'd put them into little coloured folders, and my wife would say as she left for work each morning, what are you going to be doing today? Playing with your coloured folders. Uh, and that's what I was doing. So I had my colour for, you know, I had one colour for blind people, one folder for hats. Oh shit, then it got a bit difficult because here was a picture of a blind person with a frigging hat. So yeah, it gets more and more complicated. Uh, I also decided that uh, this is a picture by Ben Shah. I became very interested in pictures of people's backs. And that was fine, that was another coloured folder. Oh, you know, hat and hat category. And then, you know, I really, but I really began to see the Robert Frank picture. Robert Frank, you know, the name I'd ask you to bear in mind. I liked the idea of pictures of movie screens. And also, I very much like pictures of clouds. Of course, this picture by Alfred Stieglitz. Um, and anyway, so... This, I mean, you can see it might have been sensible to have done categories like, you know, the new landscape and portrait, this kind of stuff. But I like these rather silly categories, uh, or just kind of crazy ones, rather reminiscent of that, uh, you know, that famous uh, description of a certain Chinese encyclopedia that Borges mentioned, you know, with all those lunatic categories, the lunatic categories that completely blew Michel Foucault's mind in the archaeology of knowledge. Uh, and actually, as I began writing the book, these pictures that straddled categories, they became really important. They became kind of nodes, if you like. And also, the fact that certain pictures sat in, in more comfortably between categories, uh, what that meant is that the, the stable form of the reference book gave way to a kind of narrative. And here's a crucially important picture by Diane Arbus, um, this just made my day. It's a picture of a movie screen with clouds in it. I mean, just perfect. Now, the problem, structurally, in a book like this, where you've got these, a, a picture like that, it's the one mentioned by Borges in that great story, The Aleph. You know that story where he says, it's that mad story, he says there's this place in Buenos Aires, if you go to this little co uh, cubby hole, uh, somewhere beneath the stairs at flat, one, at flat 101, whatever, there's a place where you can see everything. Not only everything that's around at the moment, but everything that's ever existed. And the narrator goes there with some scepticism, and sure enough, there it all is. And then Borges says, how am I going to describe to you what I saw when I looked in this little cubby hole? Because, he says, the problem with writing is that it's successive. You know, one word comes after another, one page comes after another. Whereas what I was seeing there was simultaneous. So the, the, the problem is really how to, uh, you know, how to reconcile the successive and the simultaneous, how to get pictures, how to sort of have a narrative where I'm covering all the pictures about hats, but also, you know, I also want it to be, to be able to talk about blind people. And as you can see, uh, you know, this kind of thing, this kind of book that I wrote, uh, really lends itself to the kind of reading experience you can have on the internet, where of course you can leap, you know, it encourages you to, to leap around like that, that. And you can also see how this particular image of a blind man is absolutely probably the most central image in the book. It provides, you know, Borges provides me with the structural diagram of the whole book. So I wrote the whole book. I'd never written about photographs before. I didn't realize what was involved. Uh, I thought I'd finished it. Then I realized, 
that I was coming to the real major head fuck of getting permissions for, for the pictures. And this project, which had been such fun, then it hits the rocks, uh, partly because of uh, the expense of doing so, but also because of uh, something which is, you know, one of the things that I'd, uh, I think we might discuss afterwards. So, you know, uh, there's a really important principle of literary criticism. Let's suppose that John Cook got it into his head to write something about me and to illustrate how terrible my writing was, he would cite certain passages. Obviously, John would never been guilty of such a critical misjudgment. But the crucial thing is, if he wants to quote a bit of my uh, work and then to you know, subject it to a sort of scathing analysis, there's nothing I can do about it, and that's great. That's how it should be. With photographs, it's not like that. You have to ask permission. So uh, I had to write to the Arbus estate, uh, and they wrote back and said, OK, well, you know, we need to see what you've written first. So on principle, I object to that, for the reasons I've described. But if it's a choice between doing that and not reproducing the pictures, I go along with it. So I send it along to them, and they write back saying, you can't reproduce the pictures because of all the factual mistakes in your account. I duly start writing back and say, God, I'm really glad you've pointed this out to me because I really want to correct the fact. There, is, there aren't any facts in my, in my thing. What, what there is, there's a, there are certain analyses of Arbus pictures. And, you know, there's a whole history of the Arbus estate controlling with an incredible, maniacal kind of way uh, what effectively, you, you know, if you want to have the pictures there, you've got to... You know, you, you can only say things they like. And there were the book as an object was really disappointing to me because partly because of the Arbus estate, famously difficult. Uh, Robert Frank uh, um, uh, uh, agreed to reproduce two pictures, but not the five I wanted. And then, you know, he's such a cussed old thing, Robert Frank. He refused permission for any of the pictures to be in the Mexican edition. What on earth has Mexico ever done to Robert Frank? And then Roy de Carava, you know, who took that great picture we saw earlier, he for some reason refused permission absolutely. So, anyway, on the basis of that, I was then invited to a conference in New York called Comedies of Fair Use. And like most of you writers, you know, I went along for a very simple reason. I like a free trip. Uh, I'm glad I did go because actually it turned out to be one of the most intellectually stimulating weekends of my life because this issue of quoting other material in one form or another turns out it turns out the conference was really about creativity in the 21st century where you know so much of what's being done now involves some kind of reprocessing or reworking of what's of what's gone before. And as we all know, this thing of copyright, which we're dependent on, which we think of as being used to protect the rights of the artist, is so often just used by corporations, and it's actually stif- stifling exactly the thing which it's meant to be uh, uh, meant to be uh, uh, enabling, which is to say the creation of art. Uh, I mean, and then you know, and uh, there was, a, I mean, the person leading the sort of charge on this is this lawyer called Lawrence Lessig. And Christian Markley consulted very closely with Lessig when he was making the clock, which we talked about yesterday, this great 24-hour artwork, which is made entirely of bits from other people. And Markley just didn't bother getting in touch with anyone. That would have... I mean, it was a huge amount of labour making the clock. And 
to have got in touch with anyone would have made would have meant instead of taking a year and a half, it would have taken three years, it would have been prohibitively expensive. And then what happened, I think, is because everyone loved the clock so much, uh, it just, you know, it, it, it's happened and it's worked. And I think that's a great sort of benchmark case. Um, don't want to end on a sour note, it's just a thing. Uh, so uh, I talked about, this is one of the most famous American photographs, as you know, Paul Strand's White Fence. So I wrote about uh, you know, the way that certain photographers you know, did their versions of that. It's an English photographer, Michael Ormerod, he went to America, he saw that, and you know, he didn't just take a picture of a white fence, he took a picture of Paul Strand's white fence. I love the way that there are those two pairs of eyes, that pair of eyes, formed by where the things have broken off. And then, of course, in the early, in the 1970s, you get the rise of colour photography, so Joel Merowitz took this picture and I sent. I went to reproduce it and I, he asked could he see what I'd written uh, and I sent it to him and I was writing my piece I said well Merowitz obviously took this picture to illustrate the white is not just white it's also a colour blah 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 on for a page Merowitz wrote back and said no of course that's all bollocks I just like the picture but you can reproduce it anyway <laughs> uh, and then of course you know, various reviews appeared in the book but uh, here's the thing no review of that book has given me as much pleasure as this is the best review of the book that's appeared the photographer Richard Mizrak sent me this picture which he took in the wake of Hurricane Katrina uh, he's a photographer with a very deep sense of um, of what's uh, what's been of what what was uh, you know the sort of what's gone before. Um, do you know time has marched on? So what I'm going to do, I think I'll, I'll wrap it up there. Actually, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, my greatest achievement. I'll just say something about where that line comes from. Um, I signed a contract to write a book about tennis, and it was one of you remember uh, Becky Swift, who was here, was talking very much about the market. And this was one of the things where I was really on top of the market because, you know, Andy Murray was going to win a grand slam, you know, it was, all gonna, it was a great thing. Anyway, so I signed a contract to write a book about tennis. And then I realised I didn't want to write a book about tennis. And so I spent my afternoons instead just. Uh, just for fun, really, I just decided to summarise in, in mind-blowing detail Andrei Tarkovsky's incredibly slow film, uh, Stalker. And I went from being depressed about not writing my tennis book to being happy. So when the publishers would call and say, how's it going? I'd say, it's going brilliantly. <laughs> not telling them. Anyway, so we fast forward a, a little while. And... Um, uh, 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 I duly handed in to my agent the book, which was um, uh, uh, A, it was not about uh, uh, tennis, uh, B, it was about a film that nobody, that, you know, that not many people have seen. And it was there that this, uh, this remark of, you know, I said to my agent, I think you'll agree, in my indifference to what the publisher might reasonably expect and what the market could quite reasonably bear, I think you'll agree. This is my greatest achievement. <laughs> and maybe if we have some time later, I'll read you a little bit from the book and we'll show you a little bit from, uh, from the film Stalker. But I think for the moment, we, I should I'd happily hand it over to you. Some of the questions we might ask are this idea of other creative readings of other works, crucially this issue of sampling and quotation or versioning, and maybe 
the space available now for these kind of rather funny neither one thing nor the other type books. So uh, over to you. Thank you very much, Jeff.